We also were blessed with five grandchildren. And uh, this picture was taken several months after my wife was buried there on a hill in Dover, Ohio. Can you imagine having uh, a little grandchild of yours laid in bed with you in uh, the hospital bed at your house and not being able to raise your arms to hug the baby, hug that little child? My wife was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in her early 50s, which is not technically by medical standards early onset, of course, you know about Michael J. Fox. Uh, he was an early onset diagnosis. Uh, that's more in the 40s than in the 50s, but it was in her early 50s. She was diagnosed, and she lived for eight and a half years before she died. She's an unusual case because uh, she died because of the Parkinson's. Most people who are diagnosed with Parkinson's do not die of Parkinson's. As a matter of fact, a Parkinson's patient typically lives over 20 years, some even over 30 years. And they don't die because of that particular disease. But in my wife's case, it did take her life. It got up into her respiratory system eventually, and she just stopped breathing because her respiratory function just quit working. That was Christmas morning of 2013 at 9.40 in the morning. <clears throat> After she passed away, on Christmas morning of 2013. It was about three weeks later, the middle of January of 2014, that I was sitting in the house where she died. Now, this is the middle of January in Northeast Ohio. It gets dark early, and it's cold, and there's nobody in the house but me. I had a experience on that occasion I've never had before that or since that. You know how a child doesn't have a filter between their brain and their lips and stuff just comes out? Now, I'm that way on occasion, even as an adult. But on this particular occasion, on that evening, I spontaneously said something, and I don't know where it came from. It just, it just kind of came out. I said, what's wrong with me? That's, I said that out loud. Why would I have said that out loud? I'm not a talking to myself kind of person. I don't typically do that because I can't get myself to reply. So I don't talk to myself typically. But I just blurted that out. I don't know. Where did that come from? Well, it came from inside of me. Now, I'm the guy who, okay, uh, I became a Christian when I was 15. I went to Freed Hardeman College. I was a Bible major. I'd been working uh, with the church in Hartville, Ohio for 32 years at that point when she died. And during my adult Christian life and during my ministry, I had read a lot of books about grief. And I had been with a lot of people, pre-loss, at-loss. And what I had learned is I had learned about the dramatic effect of loss. But when my wife died, what I didn't know about, what I was clueless about, was life after loss. See, I think one of the things that we need to do is separate in our thinking the experience of loss and the experience of living with loss. What I learned during those 32 years with all those people who experienced loss, I learned about the tears. I learned about the crying out, sometimes even the screaming. 
And I learned about the need for comfort. I learned about the brutal impact of loss. That's what I learned during those 32 years with all those people. But what I didn't know was about their life after their loss. Because I didn't know about life after loss, I was a neglectful local preacher. I was a neglectful Christian brother. I didn't know what they needed. I'd never read one book about widowhood. Now, I'd read books about grief, but I'd never read one single book about widowhood, about the loss of a spouse, which is in a totally different category. So here I am, three weeks after my wife passed away, I spontaneously blurt out, what's wrong with me? And if you are wondering about something, the thing to do is go to the Internet. So I went to the, I got my laptop out, and I started Googling, looking for help for widowed people. And you know what I found? Virtually nothing. I thought, wow, I really am clueless about this. And the more I thought about it, in the weeks following that, I thought, man, somebody ought to do something about this. And I got to thinking that I think there are two areas in the church where I really, really wish we could do a much better job. And I'm, I'm working on the one a little bit, and I'm working on this one a lot. But one area where I think we need to do a lot of work is in regard to ministry to the widowed. The other category that I think we've missed the boat on is support and training and encouragement for caregivers. Caregiving, and if you're here Sunday morning, you're going to hear me talk about that caregiving experience. It's the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. I had no idea about how needful that caregivers were, how much need there was in long-term caregiving. I think we could do a whole lot better job. I think we need to talk more in the church about loving, supporting, and encouraging, and helping people who are caregiving, and training people to be good encouragers of caregivers and to be good caregivers. I thought, okay, I'll try something about the widowhood thing. I'll try to do what I can to try to raise awareness about loss, life after loss, and especially with a special emphasis on spousal loss. So that's how this ministry got started. We call it our family passion project. I had three daughters, three sons-in-law, five grandchildren, and then there are two Australian Labradoodles down in Gainesville, Florida. They're a part of the family, not in this picture. But we are the Widowhood Workshop Ministry Team. It's our family's passion project. And what we're trying to do is educate people about loss and help them especially with living with loss and a special focus on widowhood. The loss of your spouse in your life causes you to have to check a box next to marital status that nobody wants to check. Here, let me give you a, a few statistics here. We are a minority. Those of us who are widowed are a minority, about 6% generally in the population. But look here, age 65 and older, if you focus attention on that particular demographic, one-third of the population, 65 years and older, is widowed. Now, if you break that down into male-female, Look at this, over a third, well over a third of the women, 65 years and older, are widowed. 
with the men, 12% of the men 65 years and older are widowed. Now drop that 65 down to 55 and look here. Dropping it down to 55, 32% of the women who are 55 years and older are widowed. 9% of the men. 20, there are over 20 million widowed people in our country. What faith-based community, what community, and especially what faith-based community is ministering to people who have lost their spouse? There are over 20 million of us. This is shocking. 1.4 million annually lose their spouses. 6% of that 1.4 million are under 44 years old. The second uh, workshop I ever did, there was a young man sitting over here in the corner. And when I got to this point where I said, give me some things that you would associate with widowhood, and I opened it up for discussion. Denny raised his hand, and I said, okay, Denny, get us started. Give me something that you would associate with widowhood. He said, old. I just laughed, and I said, yeah, Denny. I said, we do commonly associate that with widowhood, but that's not accurate. You don't have to be old to be widowed. We could go over to West Kentucky, and we could visit with Tandy, who came home one day and put her purse and her keys on the washer and dryer and walked down the hallway and found her husband in a pool of blood. She was in her 30s. We could go over to Brownsville, Tennessee, and we could visit with Brittany, who was married for a little over 1,300 days. And her husband, Bradford, was driving up in Trenton, Tennessee. She woke up married. I doubt if she even went to bed that night, but that night she was widowed. Brittany's an educator over in the Brownsville, Tennessee uh, area. I could take you over to Charlotte, North Carolina, and we could go visit with Brene. Brene's husband was a law enforcement officer. A couple of Thanksgivings ago, at night, he was on patrol, and he was in a high-speed chase. The patrol car went into a culvert ditch, and he died a couple days later. She was in her 20s. I could take you down to southwest Georgia, and we could go visit with Buffy. Buffy called her husband every day. She was a teacher. She called her husband every day at lunch. And this one day, she hung up the phone, and she just knew what she needed to do. She hung up the phone. She went to the car. She headed home. But it was a 45-minute commute. On the way, Buffy called her dad. Her dad was in law enforcement and said, Dad, go to the house. I'm concerned about him. Of course, her dad got to the house first. Buffy's husband had committed suicide. They had about a one-year-old child. I could go on and on and on with stories like this of young ladies that I've met who have experienced widowhood. It can happen to anybody, anytime. Does this kind of remind you of that verse in James chapter 4, you do not know what will happen tomorrow? Just because you get up married doesn't mean you're going to go to bed married. And I think... Sharing more about widowhood 
can help us to have better marriages. It can help us to appreciate more what we have before we lose it. When I was uh, living in Murray City, Tennessee, population 650 in Crockett County, Tennessee, about 80 miles northeast of Graceland, for those of you who are younger, that's Elvis Presley's turf. Um, when I was living there in Murray City, Tennessee, I had a, uh, a nurse practitioner who was a member of the church. He is a member of the church at Estes in Chester County. And I decided that morning when he uh, came into the room that I was going to greet him first. He walked into the room, and I said, Brent, when do people appreciate their health? What do you think he said? Just like that. When they lose it. I said, yeah, Brent, isn't that a shame that we human beings are like that? It doesn't have to be like that, does it, Brent? He said, no, it doesn't. We need to appreciate our wife and our husband before we lose them. And you know who are the most powerful people to say that to somebody else? People who've lost their spouse. A lot of times that will be more impactful than a guy in a shirt and a tie standing behind the pulpit saying the same thing. If they know your story about your loss. That is, in a weird sort of a way, how that you can take a gift that life gave you that you don't want, that you're stuck with, that you can't get rid of, and you can't hide, and you definitely don't want to give it to anybody else. It's kind of weird how that you can take that gift that you didn't want, that life gave you, and you can turn it into a blessing for somebody else, if you're willing to share your story. In uh, China, there are 43 million widowed females. In India, there's just a shade less than 43 million. Those two countries, China and India, have the most widowed females of any nation on the face of the earth. Over 85 million in those two countries to together. Now, here's what I wonder. Is in our missionary efforts in both those nations, as well as in our own, are we encouraging our mission works and are we encouraging our local churches to compassionately minister to people who have been through the brutal experience of the loss of their spouse and they're stuck with having to live with it. 78% of the widowed are women. If I were to ask you, and let's open it up here for a minute, if I were to ask you, in what decade of life would you most associate widowhood with? What decade of life you know, certainly not the 20s or 30s. What decade of life would you most associate with widowhood? 70s, okay. Anybody else prefer another decade? 60s, 70s. Then you think about 80s or 90s. I mean, that's where you think that there is a huge number, and there is a huge number, you know, we already noted you know, the 65 and over, the 55 and over, there is a good section of that demographic that's experienced the loss of their spouse. Do you know what the average age of a widowed female is in our country when she's first widowed? This is the average age of a woman in our country when she's first widowed. It's 57. To get that number down that low, that's the average. That's not the median, that's the average age of a woman in our country when she's first widowed, to drive that number down to 57, you have to have a lot of females younger than that to drive that average number down to 57. 
because you have a boatload in their 60s, 70s, 80s that are losing their spouses. 57. 75% of all married women are going to experience widowhood. 75%. Do you think it would be good to prepare for a storm? You know, if you, if you knew that there was, if you were living on the coast and you knew there was a hurricane coming, what would you do? You'd prepare for it. If you got a quick warning about the possibility of a tornado, you'd maybe go to a shelter. Well, 75% of the married women in our country are going to experience widowhood. Now, here's something that I never thought about this till after my wife passed away. Shame on me. Premarital counseling is really valuable. As a matter of fact, I typically refuse to do any wedding ceremony without extensive premarital counseling. Now, why? Because the transition from being married or being uh, single to being married is a big transition. It's a challenging transition. The more you know, the better off you are. As a matter of fact, one of the books I've read recently is written by the same guy who did the five love languages, Gary Chapman. I love this book. The title of it is Things I Wished I'd Known Before We Got Married. Hmm. Boy, some of you who've been married probably think the same thing. Things I Wished I'd Known Before We Got Married. I had no idea that their marriage wasn't so hunky-dory at the start. They had some very rough years. This is a very interesting book. It's kind of like a confessional where he talks about the, some of the struggles that they had. You know, you have no idea what you may be experiencing. A heads up is helpful. Premarital counseling gives you a heads up in transitioning from single to married. Now, I want to ask you this. If you believe in the value of premarital counseling to help people to go from single to married, how about some counseling and some education about going from married to widowed? See, if there's value in premarital counseling with that transition from premarital to married, what about from married to widowed? My wife and I went to two marriage enrichment seminars that were conducted by Paul Faulkner and Carl Burkeen. Loved them. Tremendously benefited from it. I don't remember a word, though, about widowhood. I think a really good part of a marriage seminar or a marriage workshop would be some discussion about loss, because it's going to happen. Do you know how a great marriage ends? There's only one way for a great marriage to end. Do you know how it is? Death. That's how a great marriage ends. Now, we want great marriages, but we also need to realize the reality that a great marriage ends in death, and somebody is going to be left behind. That's why we need to talk more about these kinds of things. Because it is a tremendous challenge. Hood has focused on women for good reason. Uh, they outnumber us fellas. Four to one, sometimes nearly five to one. It's estimated that half of all marriages end with the death of the husband, only one-fifth end with the death of the wife. So that makes me a minority within a minority. So the way I look at it, that makes me special. I'm a survivor. 245 million women on planet Earth are widowed. 245 million. 115 million of those live in abject poverty. 
Now, I want to open this up for discussion. In the Bible, God talks about himself as a defender, a reliever, and a protector of the widowed. What does that tell you about God and the widowed? We want to get God's perspective here. What does that tell you about God and the widowed? He cares, okay? What else does it tell you? Okay, he what? How does he care? How? Oh, bing, 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 bing. Some of us that are older than dirt may remember singing a song, He has no hands but our hands to do his work today. He has no feet but our feet. Some of God's best work is done through his people. Now, let me ask you this. Have you ever cared for somebody, but then not ministered to them? This is confessional time. Have you ever cared for somebody and not ministered to them? I think we all have. We've all, I think, one of the things I think we can ask the Lord for forgiveness of, and I do this periodically, is, is I ask him for forgiveness in regard to my neglect. And I neglected a lot of withered people for several decades before I knew what they were going through. You know, sometimes you can care about people, but you don't know what they're going through. And if you don't know what they're going through, you're not motivated by your care to minister to them. So if we're uh, ignorant of a couple struggling with their marriage, are we going to be able to help them with their marriage? If we have a situation where we don't know about somebody who's dealing with a porn addiction, can we help that person with a porn addiction if we don't know that? Now, we may care about them, but if we don't know, see, that's why we need to be willing to live more open lives, be more willing to share our struggles, and be more willing to cultivate fellowship in the church where we know if somebody is struggling. Because we're not going to be able to actively, effectively care for anybody if we don't know about what they're going through. And then if we know what they're going through, we need to know how to help them. That's why I wished I could have attended a widowhood workshop of some sort while I was married, while I was a young man. I would have been much, much better at not neglecting so much, but more effectively ministering to them. They're going through an extremely difficult challenge. They've not only suffered loss, now they're having to live with that loss. What's it like to live with that loss? Well, in the second session this morning, we're going to talk about that very thing. Now, let's look at some other passages. In the Psalms, the wicked slay the widow. See, now God cares for the widowed, and certainly we as his people need to care for the widowed and do that effectively. But wicked people don't care about the widowed folks. They're willing not just to only neglect them, they're willing to slay the widowed. And poor Job, those three friends, who were great friends until they opened their mouth, okay? Something we need to keep in mind. They were great friends until they opened their mouth. And when they opened their mouth, they became miserable comforters eventually. But it wasn't that way at the start. Please, when you're looking at those three friends, note the purpose for their coming to him in chapter 2. They came to mourn and to comfort him. 
They came with a holy purpose in mind. But they didn't know what to do. So they said things that were way out of line. They did not know how to effectively mourn and comfort somebody who was suffering excruciating loss in their life. And so they said things that were way out of line. Can you imagine Job's friend, one of his friends said, he sent widows away empty. That's why he was suffering so much. See, they believed in retribution. If you were suffering a lot, it was because you had sinned a lot. And there was a direct connection between personal sin and personal suffering in the mind of their three friends. And I think also Job was troubled with that. And it skewed his view of what he was going through as well. And he said, even Job said things he should not have said that he confessed to the Lord about in chapter 42. But he was accused by his friends because his friends knew that it wasn't right to send widows away empty. Widowed people were to be assisted, supported, and encouraged. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, the uh, people of God are beginning to experience a transition here. Moses is going to move off stage. Joshua is going to move on stage. They're going to cross the Jordan River, eventually get into the land of Canaan. When they get into the land of Canaan, what kind of people lived in the land of Canaan before God's people got there? Give me a word to describe them. Barbaric. Yeah, that's a good one. They were heathens. They were ungodly. And so God's going to have his people cross the Jordan. They're going to go in there, and they're going to blow the doors off those heathen people, and they're going to take possession of the land. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 24... What's interesting to me is that when Moses talks to the people of God at this critical juncture, he doesn't say a word about military strategy. You know, he doesn't lay the map out there and say, okay, we're going to cross the Jordan River, we're going to go north, or we're going to go east, or we're going to go west, we're going to take these weapons over here and, and those weapons over there. Now, here's what he talks to them about. I think this is really interesting. Starting at verse 17. You shall not pervert justice do the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. Now, there are three life circumstances there. Identify the three life circumstances. Somebody get us started. Stranger or foreigner, depending on your translation. Stranger, fatherless, or sometimes orphan, depending on your translation. Then what's the third one? Widowed. Now, those are three different life circumstances. But what's similar about them? On their own, no support. Anybody else? What are they all dealing with? They're all struggling with very difficult life circumstances, aren't they? Various kinds of losses. Now, look here in verse 18. He says, You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field... And forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all of the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the bows again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Notice how he keeps mentioning about these three life circumstances. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember... 
Now, where have we heard that before? And you shall remember, go up to verse 18. But you shall remember, here's another statement about that. But you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, therefore I command you to do this thing. What's he telling them to do with people in difficult life circumstances? Help them. Compassionately minister to them in whatever way you can. Why are they supposed to do that? Because they were in harsh circumstances when? In Egypt. They became burdened excessively. They cried out to the Lord, desperate for help. God not only heard their cry, God responded to their cry, had a plan that included miracles, brought them out of Egypt and relieved them of that burdensome life. Why should we minister to people in difficult life circumstances? Because God's been good to us. That's your motivation. It's because of the blessings of God in our life. We're all blessed way beyond what we need, way beyond what we can count, way beyond what we could possibly deserve. We're always more blessed than we're burdened. Remember last night, we are always, we may not always feel that way, but the reality is we are always more blessed than we are burdened. God is so good to us. Because God blesses us and helps us, we need to help other people. But we need to know those other people are struggling, and we need to know what we can do to help them. That's why we need to become educated with helping people who are struggling with issues. Now, the people of God didn't listen very well. I'll not read it because of time. I'll not read Isaiah chapter 1, but I really encourage you to read Isaiah chapter 1, and I'll put it in a nutshell, and I'll paraphrase it this way. He describes his own people as Sodom and Gomorrah. They've drifted far from him. They're not living right. They've perverted justice. See, he was expecting them to implement social justice. Godly social justice and care for hurting people in difficult life circumstances. But they didn't. And they neglected. Now, in Isaiah chapter 1, they were still offering their sacrifices. They were still observing the feast days and the festivals. But he said, you know what? It's not acceptable to me. And then he encourages them to wash themselves, to get right with him. One of the issues that they have that's mentioned specifically in Isaiah chapter 1 is neglect of the widowed. They needed to plead for the widowed. They hadn't been doing that. They weren't listening. They didn't remember what was said in Deuteronomy chapter 24. We need to have the heart of God and we need to care for people because God has cared for us. We need to care for other people. In the New Testament, I'm sure you're familiar with this indictment that Jesus levied on more than one occasion. They devoured widows' houses. I have no idea what that means, except I know it ain't good. They devoured widows' houses. I'm sure of one thing that's got to be metaphorical. See, not only were they not, they were not ministering, they were, they were neglecting, they were doing worse than that. They were taking advantage of people who were widowed. So totally counter of the will of God. 
In Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, Brother Wayne Jackson in his commentary on the book of Acts says at that point, based on what you read from chapter 2 to the end of chapter 5, you're probably talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 church members. Now, I've never been a part of a 20,000-member church. But you know what I've decided in my experience of living in a fallen world and living with people? If I'm in a church of 20,000 people, do you know what I've got? I've got a lot of problems. Because everybody has baggage. There's not a single person who walks through any of these doors to come into this room to worship, if tomorrow the Lord permits, that isn't carrying baggage. We've all got it. The amount varies. The weight varies. But we've all got baggage. Now, 20,000 church members. If Brother Wayne Jackson is anywhere near close to guessing about that number, imagine the problems that they had to deal with. And these people, a lot of these people had come from places, long distances, and they had no idea they were going to stay as long as they ended up staying. Can you imagine the ministry issues in them caring for one another and taking care of one another? Now, the first ministry weakness, though, specifically identified in the early church, is widowhood ministry. They neglected the widows in the daily distribution. There were widows who were neglected in the daily distribution. And that wasn't good. So you see there, there's a plan implemented and people to take leading roles in ministering to the widowed. I think it's interesting that of all the ministry weaknesses, I, there has surely had to have been many ministry weaknesses in the early church by the time we get to Acts chapter 6. But the one that's in his book for us to forever is a ministry weakness in regard to the widowed. Now just think about that. In light of all that we read about the widowed in the Old Testament and in the Gospels, I think that's appropriate. Something to think about. I was 33 years with the Hartville Church of Christ in Hartville, Ohio, about an hour south of Cleveland. We never had a widowhood ministry. I'm ashamed to admit that. But we didn't. We sure should have. In James chapter 1 and verse 27, there's this passage. Now, I know some of you hated English. Probably still do. Okay, I want you to look at this, and I want you to tell me in this sentence what's the subject. You know, subject, verb, objects of verbs, okay? What's the subject of this sentence? One word. Now, we're not looking at the modifiers. I just want one word that's the subject of this sentence. Religion. That's the subject. Now, the English word religion means to bind back again. It comes from a Latin word, religera. It has to do with bind back. It's close to the idea in the New Testament of reconciliation, making friends again. You know, people who are enemies being brought back together again. And that's religion is mankind getting back with God. Okay, now, what kind of religion? There's modifiers here. Okay, there's the modifiers, pure and undefiled. Now, what does that tell you about religion? If there's pure and undefiled religion, what does that imply? There can be impure and defiled religion, and there is. 
Jesus did not come into the world to bring religion. Religion already existed when he was born into this world and when he started his personal ministry. He came into the world to make religion right. And one of the powerful key verses in the Sermon on the Mount is, he said, you know, y'all, you need to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Kick it up a notch, as Emerald would say. Emerald Agassi, was that his name? isn't that his name? Kick it up a notch, he would say on his cooking shows. Jesus came into the world and said, we're going to kick it up a notch. You may have heard stuff in the past. You may have practiced stuff in the past. But every time he mentions the past, he says, we're going to kick it up a notch. We're going to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So he comes into the world to bring pure and undefiled religion, to make religion right. Now, there are two verbs in this sentence. What's the two verbs? Pure and undefiled religion before God is, okay. Now, what about the two verbs that have objects? Visit, what's the other one? Keep, okay, keep oneself unspotted from the world. God is holy, Isaiah chapter 6, holy, holy, holy. He challenges us to perfect his holiness in our life. So we need to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. Now the other verb is visit. Now what are the objects of that verb? Orphans and widows. What have we done? This is the perfect geographic location to ask this question. What have we done? in the Lord's church to minister to the fatherless or the widowed, or the fatherless or the orphaned. What have we done in the brotherhood? Potter's Children's Home. Schultz Lewis up in Valparaiso, Indiana. Midwestern Children's Home on the north side of Cincinnati. Tennessee Children's Home, four different campuses, east, west, and middle. We have committed ourselves to ministering to children at risk. Now there's a second object of the same verb. What's the second object of the same verb? What have we done to minister to the second object of the same verb? This is an ouch. This is an ouch moment here. I don't know how many times I quoted this passage when I was preaching. I don't know how many times I quoted this passage when I was preaching. Usually it was to encourage people to visit. <laughs> when we're starting a you know, visitation, organized visitation. Or I would quote this verse to encourage people to live ethical, moral lives. Why did I never see? Well, uh, let me tell you about Warren County. Uh, when I go to a restaurant, my notepads are napkins, okay? So, in a diner in Bowling Green, this morning I looked this up. Uh, Warren County, 130,000 plus, actually closer to 131,000 population. 131,000 population. There are almost 50,000 households. 50,000 households in Warren County. 16% of those households have female householders. 16%. This is, by the way, at censusreporter.org. There's a lot of interesting information on censusreporter.org. Now, the reason I want to bring this up is if you were to take all the females in Warren County, 
all the females in Warren County, 15 years and older. Now, the Census Bureau, for some reason, considers 15-year-olds adults. I mean, you got to be kidding me. But if you were to take all the females 15 years and older in Warren County, 7% of them are widowed. 7%. Now, obviously, if that number, instead of 15 years and older, was 20 years and older, that percentage would be way higher than 7%. Okay, but here's what I did. If there are 131,000 people in Warren County, and there's always more females than there are males, there are 51% 51 of the population in Warren County is female, 51%. Now, if there's 131,000 in the population of Warren County, let's assume, I always lowball these numbers, let's assume there are 40,000 females who are 15 years and older. 40,000. Of the 131, let's just guess there are 40,000 females 15 years and older. That means there are at least 2,800 widowed females in Warren County. If you add to that the males... There are at least, in Warren County, Kentucky, at least 3,500 widowed people living in Warren County, Kentucky. Who's ministering to these people who are living with loss? An unparalleled loss of a precious blessing. That, those kinds of thoughts is what really inspired me to get heavily involved in this ministry and try to educate people about widowhood and encourage local churches to start local widowhood ministries. And we've done that. Uh, we've done these workshops in 17 different states, uh, over 60 of these workshops, to raise awareness. And one of the things we do is we help local churches start local widowhood ministries. This word visit isn't just making a social call. The idea of that word is to inspect it's talking about the habit of going to see. You're checking out the situation, and then in light of what you find out, then you're ministering to that person. That's what real visiting is. You see, that's why a, a children's home is a great ministry, because what they're doing is they're taking those children in, and they're ministering to those children's needs. They're inspecting individually, inspecting and looking over the situation for that child and ministering to that child. It is a ministry worthy of great sacrificial support. And I love the ministry at Potter's in regard to the single parent ministry they have there. Helping single parents get back up on their feet and have what they need to become eventually an independent family. But this is what pure and undefiled religion is in part. It's visiting children at risk and people who are widowed. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, and I wish we had the time to spend more time on this, but we're going to wrap this session up by glancing at this passage. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, a point that the Apostle Paul makes to Timothy is that the first line of ministry for the widowed is not the church, it's the family. In 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting at verse 3, Honor widows who are really widows. And if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Widows indeed, or really widows, 
those without family. But then there are widowed people who have children and grandchildren. And it says in regard to them, down in verse 16, if any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them and do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. W.E. Vine makes an interesting observation about this passage. He says there's an intimation as you read that context, an intimation of the tendency apparently that families were shelving individual responsibility over on the church and the church was being overburdened. Now, as far as I know, this is the longest passage in the Bible about widowhood. Now, I want to notice something. Number one, when it talks about uh, honoring widows, that concept of that original word is care for. That's the idea of honor, to care for. The word that's translated widow in our New Testaments comes from a word that means forsaken. Forsaken or robbed. Now, verse 8 is interesting to me because verse 3 starts this discussion about the widowed and then it ends at verse 16. So 3 through 16. Now, in verse 8, I many times quoted this passage and took it out of context. In verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In my ignorance, I quoted that passage a number of times to encourage guys to, frankly, not be lazy, get a job, and support their family. I never really looked at that context. That's set in the context. The verses prior to verse 8 and the verses after verse 8 are talking about the widowed. So in that light... Look at the first application of this verse. But if anyone does not provide for his own, his own what? In the context, his own widowed. But if anyone does not provide for his own, because that's what the passage is about. Families, take care of your widowed folks, especially those of his own household. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I did not minister to my mother after my father died in the ways that I could have and should have because of my inexperience and my ignorance. I was caregiving for my wife at the time. We lived 50 minutes away from where my mother lived. And of my mother, when she needed help with the checkbook, uh, I was there. When she needed somebody to go with her to the doctor, I was there. I went down there every week and mowed her yard. She had the best looking yard on the block and I was proud of it. I'm borderline OCD and recovering control freak, and I really felt good about the lawn. But you know what I came to realize? What she needed most was not somebody to balance her checkbook or to be with her at the doctor or to mow her yard. You know what she needed most? Me. I didn't realize that until my wife died. I remember sitting in the room of my mother at uh, the rehab. I'm the second of four boys, by the way. Um, the best thing I can say about my mother, she never spent a day in an insane asylum and survived raising four boys. And my mother and I were sitting in her private room. Remember, I'm the second of four boys. She said this. I wished 
I would have had a daughter. Now, usually, I'm kind of like Peter. I speak first and think second. But for some reason, on that occasion, God gifted me with self-restraint. I didn't say anything. So there was silence. And then I had a shining bright of wisdom. I mean, I don't get these very often. But I had this shining bright bit of wisdom come to me. And here was my response. It was very sincere. I said, Mom, I wished you would have had a daughter too. Because I had honestly felt like I'd been deprived because all I had was brothers. I would have loved to have had a sister. Well, I think. And then it dawned on me years later, I have a church full of sisters, and I didn't have to live through puberty with them. This is great. I have a whole church full of sisters. I knew what, when I stopped and reflected on what my mother said, I knew, what, I knew why she said that. You women are gifted by God to be great nurturers. You really know relationships instinctively. You just do a great job with relationships. Now, guys can do that too, but we have to work really hard at it to make it happen in our life. I knew why she said that. What a widowed person needs most in their life, second, of course, to the Lord, is people. But yet, the typical widowed person, when they lose their spouse, loses 75% of their social network. There are reasons for that. We make people feel very uncomfortable. They don't know what to say to us. They don't know what to do with us. Because we've never talked about this stuff. You know, we've never discussed it. We've never studied it. And so there's a lot of very hurtful neglect that occurs. You kind of feel like a misfit. Remember the red-nosed reindeer and the island of misfit toys? You can kind of feel like that. So, raising awareness about this, hopefully, is going to lessen that kind of experience for people. <clears throat> so, what are we going to do in regard to the widowed? And here is something I want you to remember. Dr. Seuss was not canceled by the Widowhood Workshop Ministry. I end with this observation. Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for a chance to think out loud together about some pretty stressful and, and difficult life circumstances. Help us, Father, to always be willing to learn and help us to implement what we've learned and help us to go about life with a caring spirit that's so obvious because of what we do, because of how we live, because of how we interact with others. Bless those, Father, who are widowed in Warren County especially. Bless them, Father, providentially with people in their lives that will help them. Father, we pray that you'd help us to continue to learn more today that will help us to be better, better and more like you want us to be. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Please, let's take a break. If you don't come back at a quarter till, that's seven minutes, I'm going to threaten you with a verse of Barry Manilow. I can't smile without you. When I say that, people are always good about coming back early. I know my Barry Manilow, I'm telling you. You better get back here. Take a brief break for seven minutes, if you would, please. Let's shoot for a quarter till. <laughs>